Welcome to Beyond the Seminar, where we sit down to have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting the UC Davis Biomedical Engineering Department Seminar Series. I'm Randy Carney, and I'm here today with Dr. Tara Deans, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Utah, and her lab specializes in developing new genetic tools to reprogram cells to treat major health issues like metabolic disorders and cancer. So Tara, welcome to the thank program. You. Thanks for joining us here in person at UC Davis. Yes, thank you. Uh, what is synthetic? biology? Uh, actually, this is a, a very sort of hot question because I think that some people define it differently. Uh, you know, I typically define it as reprogramming cells um, by assembling uh, individual genetic parts so that we can re-engineer a cell so that, uh, to perform specific functions. Is there like really exciting research on the forefront of synthetic biology that... Oh, always. Yeah, no, I, th I think that there's, uh, you know, synthetic biology has been around for about 20 years now. And so it's still considered a fairly new field. And so I helped to run a mammalian synthetic biology workshop. And uh, over the years, what's been the most amazing to me is just seeing the, uh, the rapid pace that this field is going. We are not only, uh, you know, it, you know, we started out in bacteria. We're not only engineering bacteria, but we started um, engineering mammalian cells. And we're now engineering immune cells. And we actually have, some of my colleagues have actually gone into the clinic and they're doing clinical trials already. And so that's actually what's, what's so exciting is that just the pace at which, you know, people are, are um, entering into the field, the excitement from young people and, and just the vision of so many people in the field has really um, accelerated uh, what, what we can do uh, with cells. Why bacteria first? And what's, the, what, what's really the challenge again to, to mammalian cells? Yeah, no, bacteria uh, was first mainly because a lot of the um, initial studies were done from the lambdaphage. And so the lambdaphage is a, um, is a bacteriophage that actually um, infects uh, bacteria. And, and, and basically, um, it, and we, so uh, Mark Potashny wrote a book, it's called The Genetic Switch, and this was sort of the beginning of, of the curiosity of, of Jim Collins and, and Michael Elowitz uh, and sort of the founders of synthetic biology, where, uh, where you basically can have this, this phage inside of a bacteria that either decided to be lysogenic, so like um, quiet, sleeping, hanging out with the bacteria, bacteria has no idea it's there, um, or then it flips into a lytic phase, and then these, um, these phage then rapidly multiply and then the bacteria end up exploding all of these phage, and then they end up in going and infecting another cell. And so, um, so it was really this question of, wow, you know, how can we, how can we program a cell to make these cell fate decisions? You know, can we go in and can we mimic what this phage has done? It's a, one of the simplest organisms that we've actually studied. And and so, um, you know, so that this is kind of, I think, where and why. We started with bacteria because it's a little bit simpler, or maybe a lot simpler than higher organisms, you know, um, eukaryotes uh, certainly. And so this idea of going in and actually uh, engineering the cell and looking for these sort of sulfate, um, you know, I want you to do this now or do that later, or you know, or whatever, whatever you want to engineer. I think it was a little bit easier to do in bacteria, and also they grow a lot faster. And so um, you can get your either your good results or your frustrating results. <laughs> you can you can get there faster uh, with with a bacteria. When did you first hear about this field? Was it something that was always um, that you knew about or learned about in school? Or? No. So I actually started um, my graduate program at Boston University, and I really wanted to do um, biomaterials because I had already done a lot of um, 
kind of genetic engineering, molecular biology, and I really wanted to do something new. And uh, But Jim Collins, who's my PhD advisor, kept recruiting me and kept saying, you know, you need to come here. And I just kept thinking, oh, I've already I've already kind of done the molecular biology. I'm really interested. I, I, um, I really wanted to join Tejal Desai's lab. This is when she was at Boston University. But I had just this guy, like Jim, he just like kept being like, hey, Tara, you know, please, you know, come come talk to me. I really need to talk to you. And I didn't really know who he was. And he had just started, he had just transitioned um, from these vibrating insoles um, work. And he was starting to do it. He, he had a, um, his genetic toggle switch paper came out in January 2000. And I had joined his lab in the fall of 2001. And so I, you know, I read the paper. I thought it was interesting. I was like, oh, it's bacteria though. I was a mammalian person. Um, I mean, I thought it was cool, certainly, you know, and um, I was just, I was, I was really just worn down. <laughs> and then I, so then I was like, okay, Jim, let's, let's see what we can do. And uh, he, you know, and so then I joined his lab. It, it, it was, it was such a brand new field at the time that I don't even think I knew I, what I, I don't think I knew what I was getting into, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so, I mean, that's cool that, I mean, he seems like a really key person that was mm -hmm. recruiting you. Um, do you still keep in contact? Oh, and, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to him a lot. Yeah. That's, that must've felt pretty nice to be you recruited. Know, it, it is. It feels really good. It feels, it just, it feels nice to be wanted. And, and Tejal was wonderful too. And, and I felt very wanted by her too, but there's a different kind of pull with Jim and uh, you know, and I, and I sort of feel like so many students wanted to go to Tejal's lab. And I think anyway, so I, I, I ended up, you know, obviously joining Jim's lab and, and uh, I guess the rest is history at this point. <laughs> so. so you started doing some research in this kind of newly defined synthetic biology field at that time. Things are picking up. Yeah. And so um, and so he want, he actually was recruiting me for my mammalian experience. Uh, and so he wanted me to build a toggle switch in mammalian cells. That was my charge. I wasn't really sure if, if the toggle was going to work necessarily. So I then um, proposed the idea that we make a, um, a switch rather than a flip back and forth, but more of an on and off. Um, and this was actually really needed in the field of mammalian work, even in, with mice, because it's really hard to, to turn a gene off. And so, um, so I started building a switch that um, while I was working on it, I found out that I was pregnant and I um, started to get really worried about a lab in Switzerland. And I wasn't really sure if it was valid, but I went into Jim's office and I said, Jim, I'm really concerned about a lab. Um, his name is Martin Fusenegger, and I'm really concerned that I'm going to get scooped. And, and, and as I'm saying this, like I could just like feel my body getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> you know, and I was just like, I'm running out of time. Um, and so he said, oh, Terry, you're fine. Like no, one, no one's really doing this. You're fine. And I said, Jim, I'm really worried about this. Um, here's all the papers. All he has to do is loop this together. And I'm really worried about this. And so he's like, oh, okay, why don't I contact him? Of course, I worried. And then um, and then like a day or two later, he came and he found me and he's like, they're going to send us their paper that they're submitting. And he's like, you're about to have a baby. I want you to take some time. First, let's read their paper. And then I want you to think about um, maybe moving into either yeast or bacteria. And I was like, sad, you know, and so I was like, okay, so I'm not going to panic because I had just started, you know, grad school and I was about to become a mom. And I had so many things on my mind and I basically getting scooped, all of it, right? And so then I was like, well, maybe, 
maybe it's just time for me to really think about things. Um, and so right around that time, um, the uh, the Nobel Prize was awarded for RNAi. And I thought, well, maybe I should just figure out what RNAi is because I just, I kind of don't know what it is. Just won the Nobel Prize. Kind of sounds important. So maybe I should figure this out. And so during my maternity leave, I actually started looking into how to be creative with RNAi. And so I um, came up with this idea that I could so a lot of the problems that we have in mammalian uh, synthetic biology is, is leakiness. And so we try to turn a gene off, um, but it's like a leaky faucet. No matter how hard we turn the faucet, there's always some water that drips through. And so there's always some transcript that, re that comes through. And this is really hard. And it's actually important because if we want to control um, something like a really toxic gene, we really need to be able to turn it off because we can't if we want it off, we can't kill our cell because of the, this leakiness problem. So I thought, well, what if we coupled repressor proteins with, um, so the repressor protein would stop the transcription, leaky faucet, transcript would still leak through. Can we find a way to um, modularly like um, target the transcript using RNAi? So I came back from maternity leave. I was like ready to ready to go, and I said this is my idea. And he said, I told you, think about yeast and bacteria. And I said, give me a month. Let me try this. And so I tried it and it worked. And I went back to him and I was like, it worked, it worked, it worked. So then he was like, okay. So then we, we negotiated and I ended up uh, building a genetic switch and I got a cell paper out of it. So, so in the end, it turned out really, really wow. well. But What's really cool, I will say in this story, is I have since sat down with Martin Fusenegger and I said, Martin, you changed my life. And he was like, I, I said, your, pa your, your, your paper changed my life. And he said, that paper changed my life too. So we ended up talking about it. He was like, I was ready to leave academia. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had, you know, Jim's paper came out, this toggle paper came out. I have, you know, and all, all of these things ha happened on his end. And I was like, wow, because I almost love science too, <laughs> you know, but for different reasons. But yeah. Yeah, so, so Martin and I, Martin Fusenegger and I have also kept in very close con contact and we're also very close because we have like this, th that paper, it means so much to both of us for totally different reasons. That must have been so hard mm -hmm. at that time. You're, you're thinking about leaving science, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're pregnant, it's very stressful. Yep. Your line of research is dead basically someone mm -hmm. else is is going to report that i mean what what was the alternative what were you thinking you were going to yeah, do um i didn't know i i you know it, it's it, it's such a life-changing moment getting scooped i had just started grad school and uh and having a baby you know and i just um you know, I, I just, I just guess I, I had so much support, you know, with my husband and I had a girl and it was one of these things where I was like, I think I'd go crazy if I stayed home. And, uh, and then, then the other question was, okay, if I don't stay home, what am I going to do? And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we lived in Boston. My husband was a postdoc at the time. We didn't have any money and, and Boston's not exactly a cheap, uh, it's not exactly cheap, you know, but we, we had help, financial help from our families, um, which, you know, I absolutely acknowledge my privilege there. And, and we've been incredibly fortunate on that front. And so I did have the freedom to make my decision and, you know, certainly for the support of, of my husband as well. And we were able to kind of figure things out. And I decided to go back to grad school because I didn't think I had anything to lose because I had just gotten scooped at a really bad time. 
or maybe it was a really good time. I don't know, because I was sort of forced to be home so I could, you know, do other things and both keep my mind on it and off of it all at the same time. But yeah, no, I just, um, I just decided that I, I didn't want to stay home. I just thought I would be a better citizen if I didn't stay home, if I did something more. What other challenges did you face having, you know, a newborn when you're, when you're in grad school? Well, I was, it was recommended to me at the time that I should stay home because I was distracted, not by Jim, but by other faculty. I was the first female graduate student to have a baby and it was not received well. But again, I don't know, maybe I'm just really stubborn. Um, you know, I, or maybe just really, really just sort of naive. I don't, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure which one, but I remember a lot of tears in grad school trying to make some of these decisions. And I remember being really angry with people telling me that I couldn't do something. You know, I have an older brother that always told me I couldn't do things. And that just, uh, you know, ignited my, my passion, like, oh yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that growing up that way, I just, as, as soon as I got the email saying, you're, you're clearly distracted, you should stay home. I was like, well, obviously I'm not going to. And, um, and so then I came back and I, you know, forwarded my emails to Jim and, you know, and I, I will say that at that time in my life, so this was, you know, early 2000s, um, I was the first, you know, woman again to have a baby in, 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 in the biomedical engineering department at BU. I will say that, uh, that faculty came and they rallied around me and they basically were like, what can we do? How can we help ignore that voice? How can we help? And I ended up make, writing a maternity leave policy for the graduate students. And, and of course, others, other, other women got pregnant and I became a very bad influence and whatever, you know, and I'm like, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> you know, just the basic biology here. I really had nothing to do with that. But it was such an odd time for me because I was really young and, and I think really naive and but also just just full of dreams and aspirations. And, you know, and despite all of this, I just was like, I'm going to figure out how to make this work. And I do not want to work in bacteria. And so I had to figure, find my way. I had to, you know, figure it out. Yeah. And so I just, I've, again, I've just had a lot of support. Yeah. So speaking from recent experience, you know, babies come and your priorities change. Absolutely. Um, so how did that affect the way you were thinking about, you know, your daily mm -hmm. workload or the project or your future? Yeah, no, these are great questions. So I did not have a regular graduate PhD student experience. You know, I loved spending time with my baby. She's now 17 uh, years old and a senior in, in high school. And, but I, I, I loved, you know, I loved nursing. I loved, I loved all of it. I loved being, I love being a mom. Um, and so, you know, and, and the really beautiful thing with science is that it, that my cells didn't care if it was three o'clock in the morning or, or noon, they just didn't care. And so with the support of, of my advisor, of Jim, I had the uh, flexibility. And so, um, you know, babies eat like every three, four hours, right? And so, um, so I would basically go in at, you know, early, 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 like three o'clock in the morning, and I would crank out six hours worth of work in the lab and, but I, I would always plan my experiments at home so that when I was physically away from my daughter, I would just crank things out. And, um, and I would go at a time when every, hopefully everybody was sleeping. Um, and then my husband might get up and do one feeding and then I would actually go back home. Wow. Um, and then, yeah. And then, uh, and then he would have his, you know, quote, normal day, but he was also exhausted because we had a, a newborn in the house. Um, and so, you know, so we just sort of, you know, did it that way and, and it just, it, and it just seemed to work. But 
I have to say socially, it was really hard. You know, people, um, you know, I don't want to say they were afraid of me when I was pregnant, but but they were like, wow, you're getting really big. <laughs> and, and I would just be like, thank you, you know, very much. I, I appreciate that. And I just, I wasn't a normal graduate student. It sounds like this experience forced you to become hyper-organized. Um, yeah. Do you, are those methods that you took forward with you later or that now you're teaching to your trainees? Yeah, it's, you know, I I teach my trainees that there are 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. I don't care if they go skiing on Tuesday. You know, as long as there's, you know, we're, we're getting stuff done, I really don't care hours. I do think that core hours are important. I do think that we learn from each other and students learn from each other. And, um, but I, but I think I have a gr- wonderful group and, uh, and they work really well together. And I think it's, it's sort of self-selecting, you know, um, oftentimes. And so, um, we've had, uh, we've had, we have great, um, collaboration and stuff in the lab. So I think that they, that they see that I, you know, um, I have to run and go to a school play or, or go pick a kid up from school. Oftentimes I have to miss, you know, four o'clock seminars. Those are really hard for me to make unless I'm, you know, unless I can stay later and my husband can pick up the kids. So there's a lot of sort of balancing there, but they, they see that. And I think that they have learned um, from that. Going back to this idea of core hours, you know, um, having most of the people be in the lab yeah. during some time in the day, obviously we just... Uh, yes had the pandemic are still having the pandemic and I'm sure your university like ours that wasn't an option people had to come and work in an isolated yeah 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 I mean we we did a lot of zoom we did um we did some activities we did origami uh we um and let me tell you I was like one of the only people that could like so we had uh one of our student one of my students um actually girlfriend um taught us how to we started out with a flat piece of paper we were trying to make a swan and all of our swans looked different and I ended up with a very wrinkled flat piece of paper and I I joke with them that this is this is like consider this like the protocol section I mean so Celia did a wonderful job but but really it's like everybody interprets um, a fold or a twist differently and I think that writing a pro your protocols section of your paper is probably you know you need you need to be able to be very clear uh, so that everybody can make their swan that's a good idea yeah so you use that to, as a teaching <laughs> yeah, tool I did and then we we did a um, we did like different uh, cocktail hours and we would have like, you know, teaching, you know, how you had to make different cocktails. We did that over Zoom, um, you know, but the but the hours in the lab was was hard, to be honest, um, you know, because I think um, my primary uh, priority was keeping everybody safe and healthy. Um, we did have a case of COVID in the lab and um, my daughter actually also got COVID. Um, but she was home. She was, I had a homeschool three kids last year, which was really challenging at an elementary school, a middle school and a high school student uh, last year. And so that was really, really challenging for me. But, but it's also, you know, I think that everybody has dealt with COVID a little bit differently. And I think the stress of even just our parents maybe getting sick, you know, uh, I think all of us, uh, you know, regardless of how old we are, I think we've all reacted to COVID differently. Um, you know, it was scary, really, really scary in the beginning. Um, it was scary when uh, when one of my students got COVID. It was really scary when my daughter got COVID. Um, and um, you know, so I, th- I think that I think that we just sort of have have um, dealt with dealt with everything as it comes to us, you know. And and I think collectively we've managed to get through this okay. <laughs> and uh, so, where are you from? 
Oh, that's complicated. Uh, so I uh, was born in Florida, but so my mom um, was uh, a U.S. diplomat for the for the United States, and so we've moved a lot of places. I um, went to high school in Toronto, but I'm U.S. citizen, and uh, and so yeah, so I, I've just kind of moved all over. Do you think that affects you know the way you look at the world and your your approach to science? I hope so. You know, I think one of my my huge priorities is diversity. I think we need everyone at the table to solve some really hard problems. And I think that we're trying to, to solve a lot of hard problems. And, you know, so this is something that I, you know, sort of grew up seeing, being a part of. And um, I definitely think it's 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 molded, uh, you know, uh, we, we all are molded, um, you know, how, how we're raised and, and things like that. So, so yes, yeah, so I think that it's absolutely changed me. What was it like to, to move all around growing up? Um, some, it depends on what age I was, you know, uh, I moved to Toronto at the beginning of high school. Uh, so that was really, that was a really tough time. Um, but, uh, it was also a good time because, uh, you know, I, th I think, you know, when I was younger, I don't think it really mattered. I just liked, I just like having friends and, but I think as I got older, I got a little tired of it. when I remember, um, I really, towards the end of high school, I re really thought, you know, I, I really want to live somewhere and lay down some roots and travel still, but not move, you know, but now, you know, now that I'm even older, <laughs> um, I, I have, you know, three children and I do travel with them because I want them to see the world. You know, I, I do think, I, I, I think that they're missing out on some, some aspects of growing up because they're not moving. Um, you know, so, cause I, I think that there's a big difference between visiting a place and living in a place. So did you envision yourself as a scientist as a kid mm -hmm. or was that even a, a, a realistic possibility for you? Or is that something that came later? Well, I always, um, I've always loved the world around me and just been so fascinated by it. And, um, you know, and I remember my brother, my older brother, back to him, you know, getting chemistry sets for Christmas and I would get like the Holly Hobby oven and I'd be like, I don't want the Holly Hobby oven. You know, I, like I want the chemistry set. And my mom would be like, oh, Tara, you're, you know, <laughs> just stop. And, um, and I would be like, you know, and then my brother, of course, would be like, you know, will you bake me something. And so, um, <laughs> so I, you know, I guess maybe this is like the, 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 the bear in me where I'm just like, you know, I really want to do these other things too. And I loved math and I loved science um, and I loved playing sports and I loved, you know, sort of, I, I don't know, I just, I guess just growing up in that sense. And then, so I always sort of knew that I would do something. I mean, we didn't call it STEM back then, um, but I knew that we would, um, that I would probably be in some sort of mathy, sciencey, medical kind of, because I, I always gravitated to those, um, to those areas in school. And you're thinking growing up, college is on the table from pretty much all, all your life? Yeah, I don't think that was ever not an option for me. Um, growing up, to be honest, and and I think my kids would probably say it the same, and 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 again, you know, this is this kind of probably goes back to my privilege and 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 my upbringing that that this was something that I had to do, or that it was just what what we did, and um, and so I I knew I knew that I was going to go to college. You know, the question was just where. Um, leaving high school in Toronto, and I also you know spent some time in Berlin when I was in high school as well, and so I, I guess. 
yeah, I guess um, I just, I never thought I wouldn't go to college. So I was again in Canada and I applied and I, I had a general scholarship to go to Washington State and I had um, specific, I had a chemistry scholarship um, at other at other universities and I, I didn't want to feel pressured, uh, you know, to be stuck in a major. And so I ended up choosing Washington State because it was a general scholarship and uh, and I thought I would have the most freedom to explore different things. And so that's why I went there. What did you major in? I actually majored in biology. Okay. Yeah. So it was biology from the beginning? Um, biology from the beginning. Uh, well, I, I think I, I I was toggling between um, chemistry and biology. And then I ended up, like when we had to declare a major, I ended up declaring biology. Yeah. And it ended up just graduating with a BS in biology. How did you get into a lab? Did you seek that? I mean, were they... As an undergrad? Yeah. So actually, as an undergrad, I actually was in the animal science department. And um, I uh, worked on <laughs> large cattle <laughs> and um, helping to... Um, uh, make fistulas, uh, you know, so in the, in the cattle, they have these like multiple rumen and, uh, the, in the animal science department, they were looking into, um, sort of caloric, uh, the caloric burning of different feed. I just thought it was the coolest thing. There's like this little window and I could just sit there forever. Anyway. And so I, I ended up, um, just doing that. I, I actually, um, went to wash. I was there for three years and, um, and then I graduated. And uh, you started thinking science research could be a career that, that I want to do. Yeah, actually. Um, I knew, I, I think, I think the moment that I knew that I was going to be a scientist is, um, really goes back to frogs. And when I was living in Canada, I learned about this frog that completely froze with the ground. This frog, I'm, I like it's a frog, right? But it burrowed into the into the like the leaves and the and the ground, and it would freeze with the ground. So think of this from a tissue pr perspective, right? I mean, this frog has figured this out. This frog can freeze its entire body, stop its heart, basically die for the winter. And then spring comes, the ground starts to thaw, the frog thaws, and it goes on being a frog. Its heart starts beating again, and it's like a frog, and, and the t there's like no tissue damage. And I just remember thinking, I, we are smarter than frogs, right? I mean, right? <laughs> and so, um, so I kept thinking, how does the frog know how to do this? And we cannot save, we can't, you know, save tissues for very long when they're, when they're donated. Yeah, like, you know, Hollywood's done a great job with this, this, you know, sort of vision where you've got this, you know, a, an organ in a cooler and you've got like a, you know, an ambulance driving and then there's a car accident. Oh no, like the, the kidney's going to die. And, you know, anyway, so, so there's like, there's this sort of, this desperate need for, for us to be able to figure out how to cryopreserve tissues. Now I don't do that at all nowadays, <laughs> but, but this is where I was like absolutely captivated, you know, and I just thought, wow, biology is just so cool. And, and there's so many things in nature that we don't understand. And if we could just harness half of the knowledge that, that nature has, maybe we can, maybe we can move medicine forward. And so that's kind of where th that was the moment that I knew that I was going to be a scientist. Um, so you were recently awarded the NIH Director's New Innovator mm -hmm. Award to reprogram blood platelets to take yes. out metastasizing cancer cells. Yes. Um, so, you know, before we dig into that technology a bit and what that would look like, how did it feel to win that award? What did it mean for you in the lab? 
Oh, good question. So I found out I was at a Gordon conference, the Synthetic Biology Gordon conference, and I got this email and it said, you know, dear Dr. Deans, congratulations on winning, you know, this award. And I like, I read it and I was like, wait, Deans, that's me. That's, and I, I like literally was shaking because I was like, I cannot believe that this just happened to me. I was sitting down and I was still like kind of shell-shocked and I had to run to um, to, to have breakfast with everyone. And um, one of my friends, really good friends, Elmo Khalil sat next to me and I pushed my phone over to him and I was like, check it out. And he starts reading it and he's like, oh my gosh, congratulations, you know. And so, was, and so then, um, so that's kind of where it started to feel real. Um, you know, it was when I, you know, was able to be like, look, it's actually in writing. <laughs> and then... Um, and then I actually, when I got home from the garden conference, I printed my email and it's still hanging on my wall. And I wrote across it, this is real. And I, it's still hanging in my office at home from winning it in 2019. And yeah, so it just, uh, it's been uh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and very inspiring, I think, for my students. Uh, you know, everybody thinks they're going to cure cancer when they start grad school. And so, you know, my students were like, yes, this is, I'm in the right lab, <laughs> you know. And, you know, but we're, uh, we're baby stepping it. And, uh, you know, and of course, uh, we, we, I found out I won it in fall of 2019, but then we shut down. Uh, and so that was really frustrating. So that, that project's been very slow uh, to get up and running. So cancer metastasis is yeah. something, unfortunately, that, you know, a lot of people know about. And mm -hmm. this is this really tough stage in the cancer progression where um, the, the tumor spreads throughout your body. Mm -hmm. And um, at this point, treatment options become very limited and outcomes become very poor. Mm -hmm. So the the gist of your idea is to sort of reprogram or our, our own blood platelets mm -hmm. to stop this from happening. Mm -hmm. So what's special about platelets? How did you come up mm -hmm. with this idea? Yeah, so um, what I so I was at a seminar and there was um, so I had, we had started our platelet technology, but we were very early on in the platelet te technology, and I, I you know we had um, we were in the process of of making platelets in vitro, and then we had started. Um, I had just also re recently received a an NIH um, Trailblazer award to look into loading megakaryocytes to make the, the loaded platelets for uh, different therapeutic proteins. And so I was in a seminar and there is a, a gentleman giving a talk on trying to um, lo locate uh, metastatic or circulating tumor cells is what they're called. So these are uh, cells that are slough off of tumors and enter into the bloodstream and they start to circulate. And so he was trying to find ways to image them to see if patients were undergoing metastasis, early stages of metastasis. And then he said, um, he said, yeah, it's been really frustrating because these platelets get in the way. Like they just surround these circulating tumor cells and I can't get my nanoparticles to really target um, the circulating tumor cells because, um, because the platelets keep pushing them away. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, did he just say platelets? And what then, if platelets are the drug? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, what? And so anyway, so then I started um, reading about it, and it's so interesting that these circulating tumor cells actually come off of the tumors. They go into the bloodstream, and they recruit platelets. Platelets naturally aggregate around them. And not aggregate in a clot sense, aggregate in a in a sort of um, you know um, surrounding, and and it's like the Harry Potter invisibility cloak, where you put the invisibility cloak over, so the immune system actually does not see these circulating tumor cells, 
they're every time they um the you know this goes uh, past a, 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 an immune cell it's like okay your platelets you're us go ahead and um and then what happens is these circulating tumor cells then activate the platelets and then they have these um, proteins that then degrade the um, extracellular matrix in a different place. So then that's when the um, the circulating tumor cells then enter into a new spot. And then that's how we get a tumor in a, in a new location. So I thought, well, I work with platelets and we have this technology that we're building. And I thought, well, what if we could build the platelets so that um, we could put stuff in the platelet to then kill the circulating tumor cells since it's right there. Right. And so um, and so that's really what, what we're trying to do is we're putting in these. Um, we, we actually have to split a to- split up a toxin because if you put a toxin in a platelet, you'll kill the platelet. Um, so we put we make two populations of platelets where half of uh, the toxin goes in one population and the other half goes in the other population. And then the idea is that they both will deliver half of the, uh, the toxin um, to the circulating tumor cell. It'll spontaneously come together in the circulating tumor cell and kill the circulating tumor cell. That's the idea. That's so exciting. I'm, I mean, you know, I hope your team makes great progress. <laughs> I can't too. wait to hear that it's working. <laughs> so you got, you got this idea, you know, you connected the dots basically of something mm-hmm. you're already working on and something you by chance heard at a talk. Yep. Um, it, you know, I think um, your job is sort of coming up with ideas and connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. Is that how it happens for you a lot? Or are there other ways that you, uh, you know, do you, go into a day thinking like, okay, today I'm going to be creative and I want to come up with a totally new idea. <laughs> or is it just always um, kind of, they just come by? I, you know, I, I read a lot, um, not only science, but um, like non-science. And so um, I love taking, you know, sort of my, my, my creative mind in different places um, because you never know, you know, sort of what's around every corner. So I, I do read a lot. Um, so that, that I think helps. Um, you know, I'm also, I love being outside, uh, you know, so I, I go hiking and I, I have two lab dogs and, uh, so I take them and I listen to a lot of audiobooks when I, when I take them for a walk. Um, yeah, I also attend, uh, a lot of meetings, you know, many of them are on zoom, you know, there's like a lot of, uh, sort of the biggest challenges and, you know, clinical challenges kind of, you know, think tank meetings. And I love going to those. And, you know, because then I'm always like, oh, I didn't know this, that this was a, a huge problem. Then I, then I usually study it for a long time. And I, I, I try just because I want to understand it. And whether or not I it will play any role whatsoever in it, you know, is, is not really my motivation. My motivation is just to understand it so that I can think about it. Yeah. So every, every problem that I hear about is not about me trying to solve it. It's more about me trying to understand it. And sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, I think I might be able to help here, you know, and then I can kind of move forward in that sense. Do you have other hobbies that, you know, that maybe are enriched by your science life or totally separate? Or is there anything, you know, people may be surprised to to know about you? (laughs) I, um, oh, like during COVID. So gosh, about, I don't know, maybe four years ago, I was given a camera, a fancy pants camera, not just my iPhone camera. And I thought, well, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't have time to go take, like, I thought maybe I was supposed to take pictures of my kids, but like my iPhone is just way easier. Um, And so during the pandemic, everything was shut down, but the mountain, um, the mountains around us. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe I should pull this camera out. And so um, we started, my husband and I started going on hikes and I just started taking pictures and I really got into photography 
And uh, so um, it turns out you can also rent these really expensive lenses. Um, you don't have to buy them, it turns out. And yeah, but we've been able to uh, go on a lot of hikes. I love looking for moose. Uh, and so we, uh, there are specific hikes that I like to go on now because I know that the moose kind of hang out because they're pretty territorial. Um, but I mean, not to get too close, but you, this is why you needed a fancy lens <laughs> because you, you don't want to upset a moose. Uh, they're quite large, um, but they're so funny looking and beautiful all at the same time. The, the, you know, <laughs> like there's little skinny legs and this massive body and head. And I so, try to never upset a moose. That's a, <laughs> yeah, a rule I live by. That, that's a good rule. So uh, in your seminar today, uh -huh. it was quite clear, you know, anytime you're um, presenting new data, you're always introducing the student in your lab who's oh, yes. working on of that, um, which was great. So, um, you know, clearly you care about mentoring and are mm -hmm. thinking about that stuff. So do you have advice for grad students on how they would maximize their relationship with with a mentor? Yeah, I think I think that's a really important question for students. You know, I often when a new student comes to my lab, I actually have a conversation with them. I almost start at the end rather than the beginning. And I ask them, you know, where, where do you hope this degree takes you? And, uh, you know, and so we talk about that a lot um, because it, it really matters, you know, and, and oftentimes, you know, this changes and which is completely, you know, okay and kind of expected. Um, but, but that moment, you know, every moment in time matters, right? And so if a student at a certain moment wants to go into industry, you know, um, that's a perfect answer. And, but it changes how, you know, the things that I start thinking about for that student, like what are the opportunities that I can make for the student to help the student see that, you know, he or she will be wonderful, you know, going into a certain direction. Um, and, and, you know, and this changes. And so at, then at a different moment in time, that also matters. And it, um, and then if that changes, then it's like, okay, so we're going to shift a little bit. And then I just, I, I often, that, that's sort of where I, so that's where I, I, what I mean by I start with the end, um, just so that we can um, see the end, but then go back to the beginning and, um, and try to guide, you know, the student uh, to hit, to hit different milestones to reach that goal. You mentioned, you know, your upbringing and your exposure to diverse environments yep. as being something that sort of informed your approach to science and, and your lab. Are there specific ways that you address inequities or inequalities in your research lab? You know, I, I, I try to um, increase diversity uh, with members of the labs. Um, you know, I, th I think that people uh, do self-select coming to my lab because I think it's pretty well known that I... Um, you know, that I am a very, uh, you know, open person and I'm very um, supportive of diversity. And I think if anybody wasn't, I don't think they would ever, I don't think they would ever come to my lab. Um, and so, you know, we're very accepting and loving and, you know, and things like that. But, um, and so I, th I think that in that sense, it's pretty clear, you know, we, we do have a lab diversity statement and, uh, you know, this is something that, um, that we made together. I did not write it. We wrote it together as a team. And uh, everyone has, I can tell you exactly who said what sentence. Um, you know, and I thought that was a really important exercise, um, especially after the, we did this shortly after um, George Floyd was murdered. And we, I thought it was important because, you know, it was just, it, it just, it was such a dark time in our country. You know, we have this pandemic going on. We have all of this social unrest you know, and, and my students were really stressed out. And, you know, and so we, this was, this was one of our things that we did that, um, you know, where everybody could just sort of say what they were feeling 
and we got it we, we got it written down and um and i you know and i'm really i'm really proud of of that you know um in, in terms of just sort of everybody contributing and and it was it was really good for us i think as a group that's such a great thing and something that that other labs can implement that's really practical um so where can people find you if they want to connect um, the internet, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, go to, I mean, everything's online, like my, my lab webpage or Twitter, of course, I'm very active on Twitter. Um, if you want to know about the next, you know, <laughs> uh, synthetic biology meeting, you know, chances are I will, I will announce it. Uh, <laughs> so. Great. So, um, yeah, I like to end the program by, by asking our guests something that may or may not be related to science okay. at all, but uh, what's the last great thing that you watched or read? Ooh, um, I just finished recently um, the biography on um, Jennifer Doudna. Uh, really, really great code book. Codebreakers. Yeah, Codebreaker. Code yeah. yeah. And so uh, I, I really enjoyed that book. Also, um, I, I do think people should read um, um, the um, immortal, the, uh, what is it? The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Uh, and so I, I think that's also a really wonderful book. Um, I also think, oh my gosh, you're going to get me, you're going to get me rolling here. <laughs> so, Please. Uh, I also love um, The uh, the Emperor of All Maladies. That's also wonderful. Um, but I also love murder mystery books. Uh, so um, I read, I read a lot of Swedish authors. They're very dark. And, um, and like when I, it's funny because when I feel really frustrated because I'm like, why are these experiments not working? I, I got to get into a really good murder mystery because it's like, Aha, it's not this protein, it's that protein, <laughs> right? And, and, you know, and sort of trying to figure out what's going on. So I, I, like, I like a lot of, um, of Swedish um, writers uh, for, for those books. So Tara, thank you so much for joining thank us on, on the podcast. It was great to host you here in person. Yes, thank you very much.